Part 1 But the dwarf answered, No, something human is dearer to me than the wealth of all the world. Grimm's Tales To my wife Youth This could have occurred nowhere but in England, where men and sea interpenetrate, so to speak, the sea entering into the life of most men, and the men knowing something or everything about the sea, in the way of amusement, of travel, or of bread-winning. We were sitting round a mahogany table that reflected the bottle, the claret-glasses, and our faces as we leaned on our elbows. There was a director of companies, an accountant, a lawyer, Marlowe, and myself. The director had been a Conway boy, the accountant had served four years at sea, the lawyer, a fine crusted Tory, high churchman, the best of old fellows, the soul of honour, had been chief officer in the P&O service in the good old days when mail-boats were square-rigged at least on two masts, and used to come down the China Sea before a fair monsoon with stunsels set to low and aloft. We all began life in the merchant service. Between the five of us there was the strong bond of the sea, and also the fellowship of the craft which no amount of enthusiasm for yachting, cruising, and so on can give, since one is only the amusement of life, and the other is life itself. Marlowe, at least I think that's how he spelt his name, told the story, or rather the chronicle, of a voyage. Yes, I've seen a little of the eastern seas, but what I remember best is my first voyage there. You fellows know there are those voyages that seem ordered for the illustration of life, that might stand for a symbol of existence. You fight, work, sweat, nearly kill yourself, sometimes do kill yourself, trying to accomplish something. And you can't. Not from any fault of yours. You simply can do nothing, neither great nor little, not a thing in the world, not even marry an old maid, or get a wretched six-hundred-ton cargo of coal to its port of destination. It was altogether a memorable affair. It was my first voyage to the East, and my first voyage as second mate, it was also my skipper's first command. You'll admit it was time. He was sixty if a day. A little man, with a broad, not very straight back, with bowed shoulders, and one leg more bandy than the other. He had that queer, twisted-about appearance, you see, so often in men who work in the fields. He had a nutcracker face, chin and nose trying to come together over a sunken mouth, and it was framed in iron-grey fluffy hair that looked like a chin-strap of cotton wool sprinkled with coal-dust. And he had blue eyes in that old face of his, which were amazingly like a boy's, with that candid expression some quite common men preserve to the end of their days by a rare internal gift of simplicity of heart and rectitude of soul. What induced him to accept me was a wonder. I had come out of a crack Australian clipper, where I had been third officer, and he seemed to have a prejudice against crack-clippers as aristocratic and high-toned. He said to me, "'You know, in this ship you'll have to work.' I said I had to work in every ship I'd ever been in. "'Ah, but this is different. A new gentleman out of them big ships. But there, I dare say you'll do. Join to-morrow.' I joined to-morrow. It was twenty-two years ago, and I was just twenty. How time passes!' It was one of the happiest days of my life. Fancy, second mate for the first time, a really responsible officer. I wouldn't have thrown up my new billet for a fortune. The mate looked me over carefully. He was also an old chap, 
but of another stamp. He had a Roman nose, a snow-white long beard, and his name was Mahon, but he insisted that it should be pronounced Man. He was well connected, but there was something wrong with his luck, and he never got on. As to the captain, he had been for years in coasters, then in the Mediterranean, and last in the West Indian trade. He had never been round the capes. He could just write a kind of sketchy hand, and didn't care for writing at all. Both were thorough good seamen, of course, and between those two old chaps I felt like a small boy between two grandfathers. The ship also was old. Her name was the Judea. Queer name, isn't it? She belonged to a man, Wilmer, Wilcox, some name like that. But he's been bankrupt and dead these twenty years or more, and his name doesn't matter. She'd been laid up in Shadwell Basin for ever so long. You may imagine her state. She was all rust, dust, grime, soot aloft, soot on deck. To me it was like coming out of a palace into a ruined cottage. She was about four hundred tons, had a primitive windlass, wooden latches to the doors, not a bit of brass about her, and a big square stern. There was on it, below her name, in big letters, a lot of scroll work, with a gilt off, and some kind of a coat of arms, with the motto, Do or Die, underneath. I remember it took my fancy immensely. There was a touch of romance in it, something that made me love the old thing, something that appealed to my youth. We left London in ballast, sand ballast, to load a cargo of coal in a northern port, for Bangkok. Bangkok! I thrilled. I'd been six years at sea, but had only seen Melbourne and Sydney. Very good places, charming places in their way. But Bangkok! We worked out of the Thames under canvas, with a North Sea pilot on board. His name was German, and he dodged all day long about the galley, drying his handkerchief before the stove. Apparently he never slept. He was a dismal man, with a perpetual tear sparkling at the end of his nose. who either had been in trouble, or was in trouble, or expected to be in trouble, couldn't be happy unless something went wrong. He mistrusted my youth, my common sense, and my seamanship, and made a point of showing it in a hundred little ways. I dare say he was right. It seems to me I knew very little then, and I know not much more now, but I cherish a hate for that German to this day. We were a week, working up as far as Yarmouth Roads, and then we got into a gale, the famous October gale of twenty-two years ago. It was wind, lightning, sleet, snow, and a terrific sea. We were flying light, and you may imagine how bad it was when I tell you we'd smashed bulwarks in a flooded deck. On the second night she shifted her ballast into the lee bow, and by that time we'd been blown off somewhere on the Dogger Bank. There was nothing for it but to go below with shovels and try to right her. And there we were, in that vast hold, gloomy like a cavern, the tallow dips stuck and flickering on the beams, the gale howling above, the ship tossing about like mad on her side. There we all were, German, the captain, everyone, hardly able to get our feet, engaged in that gravedigger's work, and trying to toss shovelfuls of wet sand up to windward. At every tumble of the ship you could see, vaguely, in the dim light, men falling down with a great flourish of shovels. One of the ship's boys, we had two, impressed by the weirdness of the scene, wept as if his heart would break. We could hear him blubbering somewhere in the shadows. On the third day the gale died out, and by and by a North Country tug picked us up. We took sixteen days in all to get from London to the Tyne. When we got into dock we'd lost our turn for loading, and they hauled us off to a tier, where we remained for a month. Mrs. Beard—the captain's name was Beard—came from Colchester to see the old man. She lived on board, 
The crew of runners had left, and there remained only the officers, one boy, and the steward, a mulatto who answered to the name of Abraham. Mrs. Beard was an old woman, with a face all wrinkled and ruddy like a winter apple, and the figure of a young girl. She caught sight of me once, sewing on a button, and insisted on having my shirts to repair. This was something different from the captain's wives I had known on board crack clippers. When I brought her the shirts, she said, "'And the socks? They want mending, I'm sure, and John's—' Captain Beard's things are all in order now. I would be glad of something to do. Bless the old woman. She overhauled my outfit for me, and meantime I read for the first time Sartor Rosatus and Burnaby's Ride to Kiva. I didn't understand much of the first then, but I remember I preferred the soldier to the philosopher at the time, a preference which life has only confirmed. One was a man, and the other was either more or less. However, they're both dead, and Mrs. Beard is dead. And youth, strength, genius, thoughts, achievements, simple hearts, all dies. No matter. They loaded us at last. We shipped a crew, eight able seamen and two boys. We hauled off one evening to the boys at the dock gates, ready to go out, and with a fair prospect of beginning the voyage next day. Mrs. Beard was to start for home by a late train. When the ship was fast, we went to tea. We sat rather silent through the meal. Man, the old couple, and I. I finished first and slipped away for a smoke. My cabin being in a deck house just against the poop. It was high water, blowing fresh with a drizzle. The double dock gates were opened, and the steam colliers were going in and out in the darkness with their lights burning bright. A great plashing of propellers, rattling of winches, and a lot of hailing on the pierheads. I watched the procession of headlights gliding high and of green lights gliding low in the night. When suddenly a red gleam flashed at me. Vanished, came into view again, and remained. The fore end of a steamer loomed up close. I shouted down the cabin, "Come up quick!" And then heard a startled voice saying, afar in the dark, "Stop her, sir!" A bell jingled. Another voice cried warningly, "We're going right into that barge, sir." The answer to this was a gruff, "All right." And the next thing was a heavy crash as the steamer struck a glancing blow with the bluff of her bow against our fore rigging. There was a moment of confusion. Yelling and running about, steam roared. Then somebody was heard saying, "All clear, sir." "Are you all right?" asked the gruff voice. I jumped forward to see the damage and hailed back, "I think so." "Easy astern," said the gruff voice. A bell jingled. "What steamer's that?" screamed Man. By that time she was no more to us than a bulky shadow manoeuvring a little way off. They shouted at us some name—a woman's name, Miranda or Melissa or some such thing. This means another month in this beastly hole," said Man to me, as we peered with lamps about the splintered bulwarks and broken braces. But where's the captain? We had not heard or seen anything of him all that time. We went aft to look. A doleful voice arose, hailing somewhere in the middle of the dock. "Judea, ahoy!" How the devil did he get there? "Hallo!" we shouted. "I'm adrift in our boat without oars!" he cried. A belated waterman offered his services, and Man struck a bargain with him for half a crown to tow our skipper alongside. But it was Mrs. Beard that came up the ladder first. They had been floating about the dock in that misly cold rain for nearly an hour. I was never so surprised in my life. It appears that when he heard my shout, "Come up!" he understood at once what was the matter, caught up his wife, ran on deck, and across and down into our boat, which was fast to the ladder. Not bad for a sixty-year-old. Just imagine that old fellow saving heroically in his arms that old woman, the woman of his life. 
He set her down on a thwart, and was ready to climb back on board when the painter came adrift somehow, and away they went together. Of course, in the confusion we did not hear him shouting. He looked abashed. She said cheerfully, "'I suppose it does not matter my losing the train now?' "'No, Jenny, you go below and get warm,' he growled. Then to us, "'A sailor has no business with a wife,' I say. "'There I was, out of the ship.' "'Well, no harm done this time.' Let's go and see what that fool of a steamer smashed. It wasn't much, but it delayed us three weeks. At the end of that time, the captain being engaged with his agents, I carried Mrs. Beard's bag to the railway station, and put her all comfy into a third-class carriage. She lowered the window to say, You're a good young man. If you see John, Captain Beard, without his muffler at night, just remind him from me to keep his throat well wrapped up. Certainly, Mrs. Beard, I said. You are a good young man. I noticed how attentive you are to John, to Captain. The train pulled out suddenly. I took my cap off to the old woman. I never saw her again. Pass the bottle. We went to sea next day. When we made that start for Bangkok, we'd been already three months out of London. We'd expected to be a fortnight or so at the outside. It was January and the weather was beautiful, the beautiful sunny winter weather that has more charm than in the summertime because it is unexpected and crisp, and you know it won't, it can't last long. It's like a windfall, like a godsend, like an unexpected piece of luck. It lasted all down the North Sea, all down Channel, and it lasted till we were three hundred miles or so to the westward off the Lizards. Then the wind went round to the southwest and began to pipe up. In two days it blew a gale. The Judea hove too, wallowed on the Atlantic like an old candle-box. It blew day after day. It blew with spite, without interval, without mercy, without rest. The world was nothing but an immensity of great foaming waves rushing at us, under a sky low enough to touch with the hand, and dirty like a smoked ceiling. In the stormy space surrounding us there was as much flying spray as air. Day after day, and night after night, there was nothing round the ship but the howl of the wind, the tumult of the sea, the noise of water pouring over her deck. There was no rest for her, and no rest for us. She tossed, she pitched, she stood on her head, she sat on her tail, she rolled, she groaned, and we had to hold on while on deck and cling to our bunks when below, in a constant effort of body and worry of mind. One night man spoke to the small window of my berth. It opened right into my very bed, and I was lying there, sleepless in my boots, feeling as though I had not slept for years, and could not if I tried. He said excitedly, "'You got the sounding rod in here, Marlowe. I can't get the pumps to suck. By God, it's no child's play!' I gave him the sounding rod, and lay down again, trying to think of various things, but I thought only of the pumps. When I came on deck they were still at it, and my watch relieved at the pumps. By the light of the lantern brought on deck to examine the sounding-rod, I caught a glimpse of their weary, serious faces. We pumped all the four hours. We pumped all night, all day, all the week, watch and watch. She was working herself loose, and leaked badly. Not enough to drown us at once, but enough to kill us with the work at the pumps. And while we pumped, the ship was going from us piecemeal. The bullocks went, the stanchions were torn out, the ventilators smashed, the cabin door burst in. There was not a dry spot in the ship. She was being gutted bit by bit. The longboat changed, as if by magic, into matchwood where she stood in her gripes. I had lashed her myself, and was rather proud of my handiwork, which had withstood so long the malice of the sea. And we pumped. And there was no break in the weather. 
The sea was white like a sheet of foam, like a cauldron of boiling milk. There was not a break in the clouds, no, not the size of a man's hand, no, not for so much as ten seconds. There was for us no sky, there were for us no stars, no sun, no universe, nothing but angry crowds and an infuriated sea. We pumped watch and watch for dear life, and it seemed to last for months, for years, for all eternity, as though we'd been dead and gone to a hell for sailors. We forgot the day of the week, the name of the month, what year it was, and whether we'd ever been ashore. The sails blew away, we lay broadside on under a weather-cloth, the ocean poured over her, and we did not care. We turned those handles, and had the eyes of idiots. As soon as we crawled on deck, I used to take a round turn with a rope about the men, the pumps, and the mainmast, and we turned, we turned incessantly, with the water to our waists, to our necks, over our heads. It was all one. We'd forgotten how it felt to be dry. And there was somewhere in me the thought, By Jove! This is the deuce of an adventure! Something you read about! And it is my first voyage as second mate, and I am only twenty! And here I am, lasting it out as well as any of these men, and keeping my chaps up to the mark. I was pleased. I would not have given up the experience for worlds. I had moments of exultation. Whenever the old dismantled craft pitched heavily on her counter high in the air, she seemed to me to throw up, like an appeal, like a defiance, like a cry to the clouds without mercy, the words written on her stern, Judea, London, do or die. O oh, youth! The strength of it, the faith of it, the imagination of it! To me, she was not an old rattle-trap carting around the world a lot of coal for a freight. To me, she was the endeavour, the test, the trial of life. I think of her with pleasure, with affection, with regret, as you would think of someone dead you've loved. I shall never forget her. Pass the bottle. One night, when tied to the mast, as I explained, we were pumping on, deafened with the wind, and without spirit enough in us to wish ourselves dead, a heavy sea crashed aboard and swept clean over us. As soon as I got my breath I shouted, as in duty bound, "'Keep on, boys!' when suddenly I felt something hard, floating on deck, strike the calf of my leg. I made a grab at it and missed. It was so dark we could not see each other's faces within a foot, you understand. After that thump, the ship kept quiet for a while, and the thing, whatever it was, struck my leg again. This time I caught it, and it was a saucepan. At first, being stupid with fatigue, and thinking of nothing but the pumps, I did not understand what I had in my hand. Suddenly it dawned upon me, and I shouted, "'Boys! The house on deck is gone! Leave this, and let's look for the cook!' There was a deck-house forward, which contained the galley, the cook's berth, and the quarters of the crew. As we had expected for days to see it swept away, the hands had been ordered to sleep in the cabins, the only safe place in the ship. The steward, Abraham, however, persisted in clinging to his berth stupidly, like a mule, from sheer fright, I believe, like an animal that won't leave a stable falling in an earthquake. So we went to look for him. It was chancing death, since, once out of our lashings, we were as exposed as if on a raft, but we went. The house was shattered, as if a shell had exploded inside it. Most of it had gone overboard, stove, men's quarters, and their property. All was gone but two posts, holding a portion of the bulkhead to which Abraham's bunk was attached, remained as if by a miracle. We groped in the ruins, and came upon this, and there he was, sitting in his bunk, surrounded by foam and wreckage, jabbering cheerfully to himself, 
he was out of his mind, completely and for ever mad, with that sudden shock coming upon the fag-end of his endurance. We snatched him up, lugged him aft, and pitched him head-first down the cabin companion. You understand, there was no time to carry him down with infinite precautions and wait to see how he got on. Those below would pick him up at the bottom of the stairs, all right. We were in a hurry to get back to the pumps. That business could wait. A bad leak is an inhuman thing. One would think that the sole purpose of that fiendish gale had been to make a lunatic of that poor devil of a mulatto. It eased before morning, and next day the sky cleared, and as the sea went down the leak took up. When it came to bending a fresh set of sails, the crew demanded to put back, and really there was nothing else to do. Boats gone, decks swept clean, cabin gutted, men without a stitch but what they stood in, stores spoiled, ships strained. We put her head for home. And would you believe it, the wind came east right in our teeth. It blew fresh, it blew continuously. We had to beat up every inch of the way. But she did not leak so badly, the water keeping comparatively smooth. Two hours pumping in every four was no joke, but it kept her afloat as far as Falmouth. The good people there live on casualties of the sea, and no doubt were glad to see us. A hungry crowd of shipwrights sharpened their chisels at the sight of that carcass of a ship, and by Jove they were pretty pickings off us before they were done. I fancy the owner was already in a tight place. There were delays. Then it was decided to take part of the cargo out and cork her topsides. That was done. The repairs finished, cargo reshipped, a new crew came on board, and we went out. For Bangkok. At the end of the week, we were back again. The crew said they weren't going to Bangkok. A hundred and fifty days' passage in a something hooker that wanted pumping eight hours out of the twenty-four, and the nautical papers inserted again the little paragraph, Judea, Bark, tying to Bangkok, coals, put back to Falmouth, leaky, and with crew refusing duty. There were more delays, more tinkering. The owner came down for a day, and said she was as right as a little fiddle. Poor old Captain Beard looked like the ghost of a Geordie skipper through the worry and humiliation of it. Remember, he was sixty, and it was his first command. Man said it was a foolish business, and would end badly. I loved the ship more than ever, and wanted awfully to get to Bangkok. To Bangkok! Magic name! Blessed name! Mesopotamia wasn't a patch on it. Remember, I was twenty, and it was my first second mate's billet, and the East was waiting for me. We went out and anchored in the outer roads with a fresh crew, the third. She leaked worse than ever. It was as if those confounded shipwrights had actually made a hole in her. This time we did not even go outside. The crew simply refused to man the windlass. End of part one.